Today we're going to land on a good, hot, fiery topic uh, that a number of people have said, why don't we talk about this? And it's called anger. Let us leap into the fire. (laughs) (laughs) So I match with Naringa on Hinge. My simple pleasures, she writes, for, you know, one of the prompts, my simple pleasures are food, hiking, and a good book. Hmm. I scan the photographs of her eating homemade ramen to see if her food propensities require the consumption of flesh, and at least in the photographs, this does not seem to be the case. Uh, For another prompt, she writes, the way to win me over she writes, is to come treasure hunting with me at the charity shops in West London. Okay, sounds like my kind of girl. So I I tap on the little pink heart underneath the advertising copy for her various selves and ask her what she's reading at the moment and uh, and also what was the last great find in, I don't know, the charity shop, right? And Naringa is reading Matt Haig's The Midnight Library and Bessel van der Kolk's The Body Keeps Score. And I would say of the very few women on Hinge who purport to read, I mean, some people read secretly, but who purport to read, uh, most of them are reading those two books. But they're good books, so fair game. So after a little bit of, I suppose, throat clearing on both sides, Naringa then asks me, you know, what's the deal with the dog child? What's the dog child thing about? Um, And I think this is in reference to, I don't know, somewhere I write that I have a dog child Um, or that I love my dog child. And call me foolish, but (laughs) um, I see this as a sort of invitation to play a little bit, to um, see if there is space there for for a kind of give and take, for a kind of playfulness. So I sent her this voice note on Hinge. Naringa, hello, hello, good morning. Uh, thank you for asking to clarify about the um, dog child question. Yes, I'm not sure if you're aware of this, uh, but there is now the option. I think it was something devised in the last few years, either in Korea or Japan, um, somewhere in that part of the world, where it's now possible to um, incubate a human or non-human creature and uh, eventually give birth to them, even if one doesn't have a uterus, right? A little bit worried about the uh, giving birth process, but opted to have a caesarean and kind of in the belly button region, and um, turned out okay, turned out really well, because Max is here, and he is one of the loves of my life. And this is her reply, quote, what is this crap? I can't believe a therapist would talk like this. I had an incredibly painful birthing experience and needed to be in hospital for two months. It was awful. Um, uh, oops, that didn't work. Okay, so I send this message back. Naringa, I'm, I'm really sorry. I, I didn't 
know that. Um, and if I had, I, would, I wouldn't have made light of that issue at all. Um, but at the same time, <laughs> you know, I, I'm not on here as a therapist, even though I put my, I put my job down. And I, I suppose I struggle a little bit with this idea that because one is a therapist, one is maybe expected to um, somehow hold whatever the, the moral high ground is in our particular um, moment in time or in history. And I don't, I don't think that's our role. I don't think our role is to be sort of secular priests. I really don't. You know, what's that? <laughs> what, what's that line, you know? Um, what's, that, what's that Julia Roberts line, you know? That kind of thing, right? I mean, I'm just a guy on hinge... Um, looking to love and be loved. Her reply. I feel as a therapist you should be more sensitive to these issues, which you're clearly not. Uh, and at that point, <laughs> uh, Naringa unmatched us, which on Hinge, of course, is the equivalent of, you know, breaking up with someone you've just met. It's a bit like, hello, stranger. Five minutes later, after five minutes of chat, uh, fuck you, stranger, um, exclamation mark, off we go. Yeah, I mean, I, I guess I found it unsettling. Unsettling when you misread someone, and how can you really re read someone through virtual means? But when you misread someone and you think, Ah, this this is an invitation to play. And Naringa knew I was playing, right? She knew that in some way I had used her line as a sort of as the sort of setup for a kind of you know, playful um take on things. If she had turned on um some stand-up comedy and had been greeted with that, she would have gone, Oh well, that's within the domain of saying a few playful foolish things I'm gonna let that go but of course in the traumatized mind that trigger is often so strong that it can't be let go of and then the blame the blame for having caused her pain the blame for not having got or having enjoyed because I think she got the joke but I don't think she enjoyed the joke um, and maybe it just was a really, really in bad taste joke. I don't know, you tell me. But whatever the pain was, which in this case, clearly she is conscious of, is an awareness of, an awareness of where she had been hurt before and felt that I was now doing something very similar rather than just trying to be a little bit silly with the hope that it might be perceived as charming. <laughs> God forbid. That's when the anger rises. That's when those flames start to burn. And that's when one then receives a burning response, which in this case is to call into question my identity, but it's in some way my soul, right? Because I think people would like to believe that when they are talking to those folk we call therapists in our culture. They're talking to good souls. And it's almost like saying, hey, you're not a good soul, or you're not 
a good enough soul for what I understand therapist souls to be. But what does she know about therapist souls? <laughs> um, other than having been a client to one. With you, I'm in real danger. It seems like a perfect situation, apart from that foul temper of yours. <laughs> but my relatively inexperienced heart, would I fear not recover uh, if I was once again cast aside as I would absolutely expect to be? You know, you'd go and I'd be, uh, well, buggered, basically. I'm also just a girl standing in front of a boy asking him to love her. Key factors have shaped male desire. The need to compete with other men socially for access to women. In a very real sense, there's something tragic about male sexuality. But male desire is also powerful, intense, urgent. It can take a man to strange new places and open up new doorways of experience. It's never tied down, never sedated, and can incite a man to wander great distances in search of fortune and adventure. It drives dazzling creativity. Women are more focused on emotional and psychological cues. Women respond to a truly astonishing range of cues across many domains. The physical appearance of a man, his social status, personality, commitment, the authenticity of his emotions, his confidence, family, attitude toward children, kindness, height, and smell are all important to Miss Marple's detective agency. Unlike men who become aroused after being exposed to a single cue, women need to experience enough simultaneous cues to cross an ever-varying threshold. Sometimes, just a few overwhelming cues can take a woman there. Other times, it takes a very large number of moderate cues. For a man, a single cue is often sufficient and sometimes necessary. For women, no single cue is either necessary or sufficient. Women have unique psychological cues. Irresistibility and adorability are feelings a woman has about herself that influence her self-esteem. Women are also sensitive to environmental cues like food, shelter, and security. Unlike the solitary Elmer Fudd, Miss Marple is garrulous, frequently chatting with other detectives. Writing and reading is far more of a social enterprise for women than for men. Women's desires also change across the monthly cycle and sometimes droop, whereas men's desires are constant all year long. These portraits appear so different as to describe two different species separated by an abyss. And yet, our race has always found harmony within this chasm. Our very lives are a testament to the millions of times our ancestors have bridged this gap and found the cues we craved staring back at us from the other side. Okay, so this card the Five of Swords, what I see here are, you know, in yellow in the background are these two sort of skinny, despondent looking guys who have that 
tonsure monk's haircut. You know, I, I see them as the people from the last card who were, you know, paying their devotional dues at the feet of the gatekeeper. And here they are, having passed through God knows how many gates, um, feeling a bit lost and disappointed uh, by the by the by the endpoints of their pilgrimage, really. Uh, they're just left at this barren kind of promontory with the sea stretching out ahead of them. And um, I think they're a bit confused about whose praise they were fighting for, what it's what it's all been about, and they've dropped their swords in kind of dazed bafflement. And um, this guy in the foreground in the green and red is a different type of fellow. He is a um, more of a resistance fighter or a member of the Rebel Alliance and he is picking up the discarded swords of disappointed pilgrims and or of tired pilgrims who couldn't remember why they were carrying the swords and the resistance fighter rebel is picking up the swords collecting them for a different kind of battle on a different kind of front and um, he's got a different kind of energy an energy which is not born of a, a will-driven hope to gain some kind of approval an energy which flows through him which is a libidinous creative energy and uh, he's stronger than these other guys he has a vitality to him and he's picking up the swords for his creative sparrings i think sophie's touching on a really interesting idea here and i love the way that she has read the card, a card that is about motion but also imbalanced, a kind of wonky, wabi-sabi type imbalanced motion or movement. She's read it as a sort of pilgrim's progress rather than how it is often read as a place of conflict because I think a classical reading of the card would be that the figure in the foreground, interestingly she starts with the figure in, figures in the background, uh, the figure in the foreground is sort of the winner, that this person has somehow dominated and defeated um, the other two and you know like there you go, put you in your place and so the card is often perhaps placed within a field denoting a finite game, I'm thinking of the James Cass the difference between the finite and the infinite games, right? The finite ones always have winners and losers, and again, the classical reading, I think, of the card would be that in the foreground you've got the winner, and then you've got these losers, and they're sort of scuttling off to 
weep and bemoan the fact that they have lost. But they have lost, if there is a finite game here, uh, they've lost at the finite game, which is a game that is fueled in some way by suffering. Whereas the infinite game, which contains lots and lots of finite games in it, but with the idea of the um, infinite play and infinite forward growth and momentum, that is um, a good path to spend our finite lives on. And I think Sophie is pointing to that path because the way I hear her reading, and I love this as a reading of the card, that the figures in the background are sort of players of that finite game. They have clashed and one of them has lost, one of them has won, which is always the case in a finite game. It can be no other way if they are sort of trapped in that binary setup, uh, which is a losing setup no matter what, because even the winner feels a bit like a loser and the the loser in their, I don't know, whatever, bitter, recriminating, resentful, um, Cain-like minds, we'll come to Cain in a moment, um, they maybe feel a little bit like a winner, but not like the winner they want to be. They don't want to be the resentful winner um, in their own minds. They want to be in union, in connection with everything and everyone and at peace with that. And I take Sophie's reading as a suggestion that this is a progression. It could, it can maybe be a conscious one, certainly I'd like it to be, where one steps out of these um, yellow, maybe even cowardly, because I guess yellow is sometimes associated with cowardness, steps out of these yellowy costumes, uh, the costumes of the finite game players, um, picks up the swords, the swords, of course, in tarot denoting intellect and maybe also looking at the different ways in which we use our intellect. Very often we use our intellect to clash. Max doesn't have swords, so Max doesn't clash with me in that way because, you know, Max is all cups and pentacles. Um, I'm not sure about wands. There is a bit of wands in Max. But we carry all of these swords in our heads and that's what makes us clash. And I love this idea that this figure who is dressed in green and red, so sort of in some way, I guess, bringing together our flesh and blood, mortality, the redness of us, the inner redness, the inner seething at times, redness, rawness, anxiety, anger, resentment, bitterness, all of that stuff, but then covered in this wonderful green smock, which is soft and flowing and almost like a tree dancing in the wind and it is really this which holds in all the red gushy viscera all the contorted entrails all the raw innards stuff of us and I love the idea as well that the way back to I guess sort of more clear skies, um, sunny skies, uh, because as Susan Chang, tarot deciphered, she, she, she talks about these sort of ragged, scuttling clouds, you know, uh, the very air, it seems, is kind of disturbed in this card, right? There is a suggestion, even though swords are not magical in the way that 
wands are magical, but there is a suggestion here in this card that it is through these swords, the swords of intellect, the swords, the, the nimble, creative dance that one can do when we might have two or three swords, one in each hand, um, a couple sort of balancing on our heads, and we are fully engaged within the flow of sword play. Whatever is going on, there is a suggestion here of a way to transcend conflict. And for that to happen, the swords of the mind need to be used in a very different way to how they usually are used. But let's also throw into the mix Cain and Abel, one of the first mythological dyads that really encapsulate the nature of conflict. First of all, a message from our sponsor. Okay, so, so quick update. Uh, I don't know what you guys were doing. You were not going out and buying kurkure because, I don't know, supposedly <laughs> I lost the kurkure account. I don't know why. I thought it was a very, very good ad, but uh, it seems like their sales did not increase. Because um, the way it works, this is how it works. Because you're like, well, how would they know? Okay, this is how it works. So when you listen to this podcast, uh, your device knows that you've listened to this podcast and it is also able to then communicate to other devices which will understand whether an order for kukure, naughty tomato snacks were purchased online or wherever. Um, and supposedly zero purchases came from, from the last episode which was a pity, and I didn't think I'd get a sponsor for this one, but right at the end, um, maybe because of the title of the episode, one came through, and this is actually quite exciting because this is a product I already use, and maybe even it's a product you use, because the product is incense, but not just any old incense. Uh, this is, I would suggest, for my taste in incense, the most pleasing, incense odor that has ever found its way inside my nostrils. And of course, I am talking about uh, Satya Sai Baba Nag Champa Agarbati incense, um, traditionally hand-rolled in India, um, a company that has been going since 1964. Um, I love the fact that right on the back of it, on the back of the pack, you have really sweet picture of the founder of Satya Sai Baba Nagchampa Incense, Mr. K.N. Satyam Seti. And he he looks like a very avuncular, pleasant dude, I guess. <laughs> um, there's some sort of even sort of, you know, sort of a blue background, maybe even some, some clouds, but, but with a little warning next to it that says, insist for this label to avoid imitation buy from reputed dealers only. Um, as far as I know, because I've looked this up online, this particular brand, my sponsor today, um, they really are a, a really beloved incense brand in India. I suppose they maybe have the reputation or that sort of special place in every consumer's heart as, I don't know, a sort of a brand like Heinz might have in the UK. 
So this is the Heinz. This is the Heinz baked beans of incense. But I'm not sure that's going to sell it for you because probably that will get all sorts of mixed receptors going, taste, smell. So how do I use these? Is in the bathroom because, um, as you are probably aware, we detect smells by inhaling air that contains odor molecules, which then bind to receptors inside the nose and relay the message to the brain. And some of those odor molecules, like for example the odor molecules that are released into the air from feces, our brains, unless there may be our own feces odor molecules, but even then, um, our brains go, which then requires clever people uh, to try and see well can we hide that in some way can we cover it up a little bit with another odor molecule released from a spray for example spray can and it was my childhood you know I don't know about your childhood but my childhood was you go to the loo and then there would be a can of some horrible rancid smelling lavender spray or something and then you would sort of spritz that around over your own fecal odor molecules and it was always very clear to me as a child the first time I ever did this that all that was happening was there was just more odor in the air it didn't it didn't hide the other one it just it just meant that now these rancid lavender odor molecules were bouncing around alongside quite merrily bumping into bumping into each other. The one rancid, sweet-smelling rancid, and the other one not so pleasant. So if, you've, if you're still using that method, you may want to consider, seriously, you may want to consider Satya Sai Baba Nagchampa Agarbati incense. Because what I find happens there is it doesn't feel like a covert operation. It doesn't feel like the incense is trying to change or cover up or neutralize the unpleasant odor molecules in the air. But I guess as you would expect from a country in which there are uh, perhaps a great deal more unpleasant sights, sounds, smells, uh, all of those sort of sometimes unpleasant sensory stimuli that the technology that would be created would be one in which the crappy odor molecules and the delicious odor molecules, and I do think this incense smells delicious, can kind of coexist and make it then possible for us to continue playing that infinite game of going to the bathroom and then going to the kitchen and then going to the bathroom and then going to the kitchen. Because that's the infinite game of life. Cain and Abel were the children that Adam and Eve had after they uh, were ejected from the Garden of Eden. It says, first she had Cain, and then she bore Abel, and Abel was a keeper of sheep, whereas Cain was a tiller of the ground or a farmer. And in the course of time, Cain brought the Lord the offering of fruit from the ground, and Abel brought of some of the first uh, sheep of his flock their fat portions. And the Lord had regard for Abel and his offering, but for Cain, he had no regard. So Cain was very angry. And the Lord says, why are you angry 
uh, why has your countenance fallen? So there's a reference to the facial expressions we have. If you do well, won't you be accepted anyway? And if you don't do well, sin is lurking at the door. Its desire is for you, but you must master it. The story goes on to uh, Cain killing his brother Abel and uh, being marked by a sign and having to wander the earth. But I think this early story of, of brotherly competition and who is preferred uh, by God the Father, whose offering is preferred, is a really wonderful archetypal taproot to the relational dynamics of resentment. It's not fair. And a, a nuance to what you're saying, Deb, is underneath that is rejection, that both Cain and Abel bring the objects of love and devotion to the divine parent. And how damaging and how poisonous it is to, to be rejected. Yes, I agree. And there is a, a just so-ness of that story. There isn't any uh, explanation as to why the Lord God happened to prefer uh, Abel's offering. Uh, why is meat better than vegetables, for example? Um, but there is. this is just the way it is. Well, and not unlike the way children feel. Um, if a child's offering of love is rejected, it doesn't generally come with an explanation. It's just something is approved of and something is disapproved of or drawn close or rejected. Yeah. And, you know, if you're five years old, you're not getting complicated, you know, feedback around all of that. I've been thinking about the word incensed recently uh, from the Latin incensare or incendere. I'm never sure the, how to pronounce Latin. Incensare, incendere. Um, as in set on fire. That's what it means, to set something on fire. Although the first figurative meaning of the word, because we, we use it mainly figuratively these days, right? Uh, we don't talk about real fires being incensed. We talk about ourselves being incensed. So it seems like the first figurative meaning actually, interestingly, points towards a more benign usage of the term. So in the 15th century, to be incensed would be to feel inspired or inspirited in some way, sort of excited, aroused, stirred to action, which might, I guess, suggest the possibility that this feeling has become somewhat diminished in our experience of it, over the centuries, because now to be incensed is to be on Naringa's train, uh, and it's a train where you are without a ticket and the conductor is bearing down on you. That's the feeling of being on that train, um, to be facing that kind of incensed uh, energy. And I think to be incensed as we use it now as a kind of moral category is to feel that initial burn that initial singe of anger and reactivity, but then in time to become sort of resentful uh, and brooding um, in a very Cain-like way, you know, deeply, darkly, and stupidly, really, resentful. Because that kind of suffering isn't going anywhere else other than our own minds. And 
really, if you really think about it, to be incensed, actually to be incensed about anything, unless it's moving us towards, say, some um, useful, constructive social engagement or action, to be incensed about anything is utterly useless. It's like fuming that the sky is blue or grey and the grass is green. But it's such an easy state to slip into. I slip into it all the time. These two brothers, Cain and Abel, and aren't we all brothers and sisters ultimately because we are all creatures thrown onto this earth and left, some would say, to get on with it and to look after each other and to help each other get on and get through. But these two brothers make an issue over what is acceptable or what is not acceptable in the eyes of God. The one brother, Cain, the vegan, <laughs> uh, we, now, we now discover, offering to God the fruits of the earth. So some simple but delicious berries. And Abel offering to God, certainly for that desert tribe, a much higher value offering, but one that requires the killing of an innocent lamb so as to sate gods and man's, because this is a very anthropocentric god, god's taste for blood, because a piece of lamb is going to offer more sustenance to the anthropomorphic god than a handful of berries. And God, this very rigid, very, these are my criteria, and you either fulfill them, and if you don't, you're out. You're out of the garden. You're out of the garden of Eden. You're banished. You're, I don't want to talk to you. I mean, that's the kind of God, right, we're talking about here. That God could not favor a handful of berries over a lamb chop. And Cain can't accept that. Here's the moment in the King James Version of the Bible. And in the process of time it came to pass that Cain brought of the fruit of the ground an offering unto the Lord. And Abel he also brought of the firstling of his flock and of the fat thereof. And the Lord had respect unto Abel and to his offering. But unto Cain and to his offering he had no respect. There's no respect. There's no sense of... This is also worthy in my eyes. It's just a sense of no, right? And here's the word in the, in the King James, which is yet to turn the word incensed into a moral category. Um, it just says simply, Cain was very wroth. He was very angry. <laughs> and his countenance fell, you know, angry and dejected. And then the Lord says unto Cain, you know, why are you wroth? Uh, why is thy countenance fallen? Blah, blah, blah. You know, come on. Come on, old chap, buck up. But in a more modern version, um, Robert Alter's recent translation of the, the five books of Moses, the word incense is actually used. And it happened in the course of time that Cain brought from the fruit of the soil an offering to the Lord, and Abel too brought from the first choice firstlings of his flock, and the Lord regarded Abel and his offering but he did not regard Cain. So here it's sort of been softened to regard versus respect. I, I sort of, I, to me, respect feels psychologically more about what we're, what we're trying to get here from 
the from this sort of parental, the superego. We're trying to get respect. We're trying to get acknowledgement. We're just trying to get, we just want to be seen in the modern idea of being seen, which is maybe why Alter uses regarded here. And then it says, Cain was very incensed. That word is used by Alter for, um, instead of very angry. He was not just incensed, he was very incensed. And his face fell. And the Lord said to Cain, why are you incensed? And why is your face fallen? For whether you offer well or whether you do not, at the tent flap, sin crouches. In other words, you know, we're all in the same boat, you muggle. And for you is its longing, just like for me, because I'm just the Wizard of Oz here. I'm not really God. But you will rule over it. I think this is what that figure in the foreground of the Five of Swords is offering the canes of this world. It's offering that non-binary position, which is also a non-dualist position, which is also uh, a place for potential liberation, mental, physical, spiritual. It's saying something like, when the fires of wrath begin to burn, redirect their energy to a living source, a source that also gives us agency, because we are the one wielding the swords. We're just not wielding them against anyone else, and neither are we wielding them against ourselves. What we are wielding them for is, of course, the ultimate koan, but maybe it doesn't matter as long as we know that these swords, even the one that slew Abel or causes a great deal of bloodshed every day in the mouths and the bodies of incensed human animals like you and me. But as long as we know that the swords are being put to good use, even if it means slicing up some lopsided vegetables for a minestrone soup or filleting out little meaty chunks of audio that we hope other people might find as tasty and fulfilling as we do. That's really all that counts, isn't it? I would also suggest that this whole paradigm has been f forecast in the Garden of Eden, where the split between Adam and Eve and God, Adam and Eve do something that is displeasing. And the thing they do that's displeasing is that they learn about splitting, is they learn about the split between good and evil. And then that is actually demonstrated in the story by them being rejected and rejected vigorously because there's a, a cherubim with a flaming sword left, you know, at the gate to Eden. So you are banished for being displeasing. And then that same split happens again in the next generation. So it's almost a kind of intergenerational trauma that happens. Well, but I think it also shows this necessary loss of innocence that things don't always go our way. We are not always pleasing, even though we may uh, learn as children that if we're good girls and boys and we work hard and we do the right thing, things will go our way. That's actually not how the world works. And eventually, whether we're young children or later in life, we're going to have an experience where we come up against a painful rejection 
or disappointment? And then what do we do with it? And I think the story of Cain and Abel does show us one kind of psychological attitude that we often take to such a rejection, which is we fall into resentment. Yes. The alternative to that would be a kind of radical acceptance. And they're not necessarily mutually exclusive because we might be resentful for a while, but then have a shift in attitude that allows us to deepen and soften into something and accept it more and and see where that road leads us. Incense going, the Satya Sai Baba Nat Champa Agarbati incense. I guess a little bit of chanting. Shall we do that? Yep. A few lines from the Buddha? Yep. Yeah? Yeah. Voice order, burning in haze. Eyes order, ears order, nose, lips, tongue order, mind order, body order. Burning, burning, burning away. Come on, guys, I know there's only five of us here, but come on. Sound burning, scent burning, taste burning, touch burning, incandescent, bonfires burning, burning pleasure, burning pain. Either, neither, burning away, away, burning away. Feel the fire that burns to the Contact feeling craving takes us, calls to awaken soul. Know that free yourself from ardor, find some peace while burning away. What? <laughs> 